we acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lestrician and I'm here with Natalie Smatis. Hi! In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. David Lockie. Dr. David Lockie is an associate professor in the Biology Sciences Department at McEwen University, where he conducts research and teaches freshwater ecology, biostatistics, and research design, field research, and other ecology classes. He is a certified professional wetland scientist, international, and a professional biologist, Alberta. David has been at McEwen since 2010. David's research has been presented in peer-reviewed journals, regional policy, and management publications, and at international conferences. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to talk about this subject. Tell us a little bit about your field of research and what made you interested in this research. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I, uh, I'm a wetland ecologist is probably the simplest way of describing it. So I did my master's on birds and wetlands at the University of Waterloo and then switched gears to plants and wetlands and came out to the University of Alberta to do my PhD. And the focus of that research was looking at the impacts to boreal peatlands from logging and then various biodiversity issues. So for instance, do the plant communities and diversity of plants change as you go across Western Canada. So I looked at various facets like that. And uh, before that, though, I'd like to preface, I, I, I was a fish and wildlife technician graduate from Sir Sanford Fleming, and I actually credit that to uh, being a real boon to my education and ability to teach at McEwen because it's in a very applied aspect. I also have uh, several years of environmental consulting, and that's why I have the professional designations because those are required to work. So I've worked in the oil sands, I've worked in uh, Up Greater Alley and also on some of the pipelines as well, too, and still conducting a little bit of pipeline research right now, impacts to wetlands and plant communities and specifically rare plants. So as what often happens with professors, you start off with a certain paradigm that you become good in, so wetland ecology, so birds and plants for me. But as you, you know, go through your career, opportunities seem to present themselves. And I noticed this with my master's and PhD committee members is that they were doing all kinds of things unrelated <laughs> to their original degree. And I find myself, you know, several years later at McEwen with my finger in a number of different pies right now, as those opportunities came, uh, I've taken them and it's been very enriching. So very briefly, it's broad. I, I do wetland policy research impacts to wetlands, but I'm also looking at fish diet dynamics at Lac La Biche. Uh, that's another story where I basically received about 1,500 fish stomachs uh, from a colleague at Alberta Environment. And uh, a colleague and I, Dr. Renal Das, are looking at those with uh, probably two dozen students have gone through the system looking at that. And then, of course, microplastics is the most recent one. And that's, um, you know, to maybe use the term, kind of one of the new sexy areas of biology right now because this is a ubiquitous problem. It's in the air. It's in the water, it's in the soil, and of course it's in the organisms. And we are so far from understanding what's going on that we're just looking at what's there and how much. So that kind of summarizes what I've been up to as of late. Cool. Yeah, that's some interesting stuff there. Awesome. I think we should start with one of the most interesting things. You were talking about the stomachs of the fish. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah, so have a colleague who works at Alberta Environment, and she's working in fisheries research, 
and of course the government of Alberta and many other governments to want to increase the opportunities for anglers, in particular walleye and other game fish. So Lac La Biche apparently had some lower quantities of walleye. And so what often happens, uh, unfortunately, is um, they may use some antiquated techniques, I might add, for instance, cormorant culls, which is very controversial. And I think between 1,000 and 1,500 cormorants were culled uh, and the eggs oiled. And then they dumped uh, several hundred million walleye fry into Lac La Biche. Uh, in order to increase these opportunities without understanding that there are you know, probably at least two dozen other species of fish in there. And um, you know, Dr. Andrea McGregor, my partner in this project with Alberta Environment, she had the wherewithal to develop a project where she gill netted up to nine different species of fish using different size nets over a period of six years after this you know, major management decision in Lacta Bush. And so she wanted to see over the six years what was going on, for instance, with the walleye, all the way up to pike and then down to, you know, stickleback, some of the smallest fish. We have nine different species. Unfortunately, the government canned the program in their mm. infinite wisdom, um, <laughs> and uh, the stomachs were literally going to be thrown out. So I, uh, I got a hold of them, and I realized I've got some great expertise with Dr. Renal Das, who's a fist evolutionary biologist. And so we've been working with students over probably the last five or six years, looking at the different species and groups of species and seeing what happens over time with the uh, the fish stomach contents. So as you can imagine, having whole fish would be just, you could never store them. So the all of the morphometric information about the fish, the length, the weight, age, things like that have already been calculated and then the stomachs preserved. So we have the stomachs, which are very easy to store. I have a whole closet in one of the biology labs uh, <laughs> full of these stomachs and we've got them all cataloged. And so we've had students go through probably about six different species of fish. The most recent was pike, where Jennifer Roth, one of our uh, honors students, looked at 122 pike stomachs to try to understand if the diet actually changed. And we certainly saw some interesting things happening with respect to in invertivory, invertivory. <laughs> I'm not sure how to pronounce that right now, but basically eating bugs. And pike will actually switch to bugs during certain times of the year if their other sources of food have diminished. And of course, other species of fish like walleye compete with pike. So we thought that merited. So we did see some interesting things. We have, have submitted the manuscript to the Canadian Journal of Fisheries uh, Research and Aquatic Science, and we're just waiting to hear back on that. We also have a, another journal article been submitted on another species of fish and probably two or three more. So the delightful thing about this project is we've been able to get students involved into the Biology 498 projects, which are one-term projects, which is a nice bite-sized piece of research that they can learn about and develop skills at. And of course, we can add this to a larger data set. And ultimately, you know, all those students will be on the manuscripts once we put all the data together. So it's been just a fantastic opportunity for Dr. Das and I, and especially the students. That's nice. Do a lot of the students get to do field work as well? Uh, yes, it depends on, you know, the research. Uh, with respect to my own personal research, I don't have a specific project right now where students are working with me, but uh, I have just developed a recent uh, field course where students are looking at invasive species in the ravines across Edmonton. And so that will be my next project. We found some significant differences in the ravines. And the, the ravines in Edmonton are quite fascinating because they're literally boreal disjuncts. They're little pieces of land that were in the boreal zone at one time. But because of the microclimates of the very steep and cool ravines, the boreal species are still there. 
Some of them are happier than others. And so they're very unique ecosystems, and no one has really done any research as far as I can see. So we had 10 students working on that project last summer, Canard Ravine and the uh, White Mud, and hopefully that will evolve into 498 and hopefully an honours project where students will be doing field research looking at the different plant species and to see what's going on. Nice. That's very exciting to be immersed in your research. Maybe we should talk about microplastics. What is microplastics? Microplastics... um, Technically, is anything five millimeters and below, and it might go to you know hundred nanometers. the The bottom end of it is very difficult to describe, and different researchers will use a different sort of range. But we use you know basically five millimeters or less, and it's usually the smaller ones. So for our research, just to give you an idea for size, we use a fifty three micron zooplankton, which is about the third of the width of a grain of like sugar, like a fine sugar. So it's okay. It's not the best, but um, it's low tech. So of course, just, you know, as an aside, McEwen, we're teaching university focused on, you know, 60% of our time is is teaching, but the 30% is research. And that's flipped at research oriented universities like University of Alberta and UBC, et cetera. So we have to make do with less time and and less money. So, um, you know, the projects that we are involved in are relatively low tech and, you know, know, low money. I mean, you know, I got a a recent grant, I guess about three years ago for some of the microplastics work of $20,000 and I could barely spend it all in three years Mm -hmm. because it's just really student wages and minimal supplies. So we're fortunate that we can do some of this research. So, um, this research, I didn't start out, you know, as my own idea. So Dr. Matt Ross in chemistry had already been doing some research with uh, silicone and various other plastics with students. And uh, the research office here at McEwen decided that they'd like to see some more collaboration among the departments. So they put out a call for some relatively, you know, large money, at least within the sphere of McEwen, around $20,000, $25,000, to see uh, if, if we could get some people working together. So Dr. Ross contacted me. And he needed an ecologist to do some work. And so I helped design the study. And the first project we did was looking at microplastics in the North Saskatchewan River. And out of that, you know, we uh, published the first, to our knowledge, paper on microplastics in Alberta, just out of McEwen. Wow. Hmm. Low tech. Uh, we had a, a star student, uh, Taylor Bujasek, who is now at the University of Alberta. And she did a lot of the work for us. Um, and, and essentially, we had about 22 locations from Devon to towards Fort Saskatchewan, with most of them in the city of Edmonton, along the river. And we did sampling above and below the Gold Bar wastewater treatment plant. So we had a couple questions. The first one is, is there anything in the river? And if so, are there differences upstream and downstream? Because you do see differences with nutrients and even the suite of, uh, of invertebrates, depending on what's flowing into the river. And then, of course, sewage treatment plants, in particular in Europe, and some of the research has shown that there is a huge pulse of microplastics on the outlets. They are not pulling them out. Mm. So we thought, wow, okay, is this is going on here? So we had no idea what was going on. So we, we did this research, you know, here again, fairly low tech, but, you know, as stringent as we could. And uh, lo and behold, we did find some very interesting uh, numbers. So, for instance, the river itself, you know, averages about 26 particles per cubic meter of microplastics. And that ranges from 6 to maybe 88. Uh, Fairly high standard deviation. We just had snapshots over one week. And so you could see that, um, you know, there could be some variability with large rains and that. But that just gave us an indication. And those numbers are very similar to what they're finding in other rivers around the world. So Edmonton, of course, is the largest city in the North Saskatchewan 
Saskatchewan River watershed. So we are likely producing a lot. So another interesting part is we were able to see that there are fragments, fibers, film, and then also microbeads. Now, microbeads have been banned for almost 10 years now in Canada. Those are the little scrubbies that you'd put in face wash and things like that. Mm. But there's still a signature in the system. So we're finding those in parts of Edmonton, but in other parts, we're seeing more fibers and film. And for the most part, the bulk of it is fibers. And most of them are like the polyester, so polyethylene, polypropylene, uh, and also a lot of cotton fibers. So the bulk is fibers. And these are likely from, you know, clothing. Mm-hmm, right. You know, most clothing now is not 100% cotton. It often has and synthetic, you know, so we all wear them. So it's either blowing in the air or it's, you know, washing in through the drain pipes and things like that. Uh, we don't know. Now, with respect to no difference upstream and downstream of the gold bar wastewater treatment, like we found no difference at all, which was very encouraging. Gold bar actually is well known for their nutrient reduction, nitrate and phosphorus. They've got some fairly high tech systems in there. And what I think is happening is that a lot of the solids that come out of the wastewater treatment plant are captured. They are digested at a very high temperatures, so like a compost. And it literally is human compost. That compost ends up on Edmonton's farmer's fields. Yes. So I suspect that there's a signature being reintroduced into. So that's another avenue of research for us at mm. some time when we can make the time and maybe get a grant, but is looking at the bio waste that is basically put on the fields. So, uh, and then just to add to that, this, this next little part is we now have uh, 60 sites across six different landscape types. So we've got, you know, natural areas, parks, agricultural areas, industrial areas, areas around the highways. Um, and I'm probably missing something here, but there's six of them all together. And we have 10 sites. Not only do we have water, sediment, but we also have a full suite of the invertebrates at every site. And the most common is a little kind of a freshwater shrimp called gamaris, okay, uh, or scuds, as fishermen call them. So they're bottom feeders, and we have a couple students working on that right now. And guess what? We have microplastics in the scuds. So not only is it in the water, uh, and it, it's different by every landscape type as well, just with the initial research. Uh, we've done the water, the sediment samples have been processed, but we've not really analyzed them. And like I say, the scuds are being analyzed further. We just have some small subsamples from each. And yeah, so it's um, going up. So we have also higher order insects, for instance, maybe some of the large predaceous beetles that would feed on the scuds could potentially, you know, take up the microplastics that mm-hmm, way. Yep. And then, of course, you know, you would have fish and then birds. The fish and birds are much more difficult because that's really um, a whole other sphere of research where you have to get ethical permission and things like mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, we still have, you know, a lot to do with just the invertebrate samples we have. So that's more or less where we're at. And just as an aside, we've had a couple students doing some fun research. Uh, Ross was able to find some seal stomachs from the Arctic. Oh. So we had a student doing a 498 project, Bio 498, last fall. And yes, there are microplastics in seal stomachs in the Arctic. The next chapter, a uh, student is working on this summer is duck stomachs mm-hmm. from the Edmonton area. So, you know, we're kind of spread thin, but we're finding out some really neat stuff. And um, here again, we're really at the baseline right now. Yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting that your group is kind of the first that you know of kind of doing this research. It's, it's super, super interesting. And, you know, I, I take a, a personal pride in being associated with McEwen. I mean, we are a teaching institution. We're not a research institution, and we're able to do this amazing mm-hmm. research. So, you know, just as an aside with respect to publishing, so I've got a few papers with students now. You know, when I was an undergrad, uh, you never thought about publishing. 
that, that was not something, but at McEwen, we don't have a grad program. We have been able to pivot and we are publishing with our students yes. in peer-reviewed yeah. journals, which is just, it's amazing. So the quality of the students coming out, probably related partly to the teaching, but of course <laughs> the students themselves, the interested students uh, is showing that we're really doing some amazing stuff at research with limited resources. Sounds like it. Yeah. Well, especially, I think you talked in one of the papers about how lots of research goes into ocean research and not so much freshwater research. And even to where we're talking about bottom feeders, I watched a podcast yesterday. I think his name was Michael Simon, a researcher. And he talked about how if you eat three sardines, you have a high percent chance of having a grain of rice size of microplastics in your body. Wow. That yeah. is astonishing because I eat sardines twice a week. Yeah. They're so good for you. Sardines <laughs> well, and mussels too. If you eat a lot of mussels. I heard about the mussels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because the filter feeding, but sardines, that's astonishing. Sardines. So maybe I should just go to one can a week. <laughs> well, and also on the podcast, he was talking about policy. Um, when we wash our clothes, we have a filter in the dryer, but there's no filter in the washer uh. for fabrics and fibers. And so then it goes to the water mm -hmm. treatment plant and then is put back into the rivers and then is put on crops. And so it's just kind of like, but in France, they're trying to approve a policy where you have to have a filter in your washing machine. Yeah, the research has been done. They're effective, but they're about 250 bucks. Like you can almost buy a washing machine for, for you know, like <laughs> right. three, 400 bucks. So it's, it's a... It would definitely have to be a policy decision to get people to do that. How do you think we could go about doing that? Do we just need people to be aware or should it be a government thing for policy? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's a couple ways of looking at it. Like, let's look at the plastics industry in Canada. I think um, two years ago, it was almost $40 billion a year. Did you know that almost half of that is Alberta? Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, quite a bit of it is coming out of uh, Fort Saskatchewan. When Jason Kenney was in, he was uh, a big cheerleader of increasing plastics production. Um. Plastics, for the most part, are a petrochemical byproduct. I mean, look at everything on the table here. It's all plastic. Mm -hmm. So it is very useful. But what do we do with it? And I think it's something 86% of plastics produced in Canada or used in Canada are not recycled. Yeah. Maybe 15% is being recycled. So if you just step back and look at our research, what we found are primarily the fibers. And uh, that's probably the washing machines, I would think. But the other plastics are just from garbage. So, you know, that water bottle on the side of the road that's in the sun, it's getting heated up and frozen, it will eventually become, it's just a piece of macroplastic thinking about becoming a microplastic. That microplastic, to the next topic, is thinking about becoming a nanoplastic. So the nanoplastics are the ones of concern. They're intracellular. And the problem with that is that if there's something on the plastic that's uh, a nasty, some sort of a, you know, a chemical and unamenable to, to life, um, that's a problem. And, and how plastics will actually get that? I mean, you look at a piece of plastic uh, and it seems fairly inert. You know, the PBA-free is, is now a big common thing in all your water bottles. But the problem is, is two things. Um, those microplastics will actually have a charge and they basically will adsorb chemicals that may be in the water hmm. or soil or wherever. So they will have something stick to them 
and now they are part of the microplastic. That's huh. a problem. And then some microplastics are already toxic. So depending on where they're from, they are already coming with some inherent toxin within the chemical structure. So that's the sort of two sources of these nasties. So the microplastics, we don't know. Um, I just saw yesterday it came out showing they were doing some research on stomach models that show that the fibers in particular that we're ingesting, which seem to be the common things, are now basically attaching themselves to the stomach and creating some sort of differential process that is not amenable to digestion. So oh. they're very early in the research, but these things that we suspect are going right through us because they can, of course, do, you know, fecal assessments and things mm -hmm. like that. And the microplastics are in there. So lots of the plastics are going through us, for sure. Some may not, though. Some may be staying. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is just a huge field of research is just so much to know and you know at, at some point we'll hopefully we'll be working a little bit more collaboratively together to figure this out but right now it's just what's there and and what is it what type of plastic hmm. yeah there's so many branches that you can go off in this field it's crazy well, especially once you start to do the research and you realize it's everywhere and so everyone kind of has the opportunity to research about it. Absolutely. So, you know, and just to add, you know, with respect to amounts, we you talked about the sardines and stuff like that. You know, if you just turn the top of your water bottle or your bottle of Pepsi or whatever it is, it's apparently three to six pieces of microplastic every time you just turn the lid. Oh, wow. So research out of, I believe it's a Simon Fraser and then another research institute in Europe have shown that the two populations, Canada and in that part of Europe, are consuming approximately a credit card's worth of plastic in food or water per week, which is astonishing. Oh, wow. And the more recent research came out and showed that it's actually in the air now. So I'm not sure where the region was. That just came out this week as well, too, where you're breathing in approximately five grams per day. So I'm looking at the lovely, you know, carpet in the studio <laughs> here and it's plastic. So every time you walk on it, you're creating a little cloud of plastic. So is it inert? Good, bad? We don't know. Mm. But it's here and it's here to stay. And just given the amount of plastic that's in the environment right now, getting back to your very initial question there, Brooklyn, even if you stopped all the plastic production right now and created an amazing recycling program, um, the latent effects will be decades, if not hundreds of years, given the vast amounts that are on land, in fresh water, and eventually ending up in the ocean. And of course, some of the highest concentrations of microplastics in the world now are in the Arctic. Wow. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's ocean gyres bringing plastics up, but also they think it's atmospheric deposition oh. and incredibly high composition. So here again, this is probably why we're finding microplastics in seal stomachs. Yeah. You introduced the concept of keystone ecosystems and wetlands in Alberta. Can you explain this concept to us? Yeah. So when I was hired in 2010, I had been working with someone and consulting a few years before, and that person is uh, part of the Alberta Institute of Agrologists. He's the CEO there. And so he, um, he runs a program there where they produce a green paper on an environmental issue for the agrologists every year. So um, he chose me to do that. And I always had this idea of wetlands being this very critical component. So if you look at a keystone, a keystone is that sort of triangular shaped rock that is above a doorway or a window in a stone building and it keeps the window from collapsing. Hmm. If you remove the keystone, literally the whole wall will collapse. Hmm. 
So the keystone species, and many people know that you know beavers are a keystone species. Um, wolves can be considered. The concept is is that they are a small proportion on the landscape. So you know whether by numbers or their biomass, but they have a huge impact on an ecosystem inordinate to their presence. So. Beavers are a very good example of that. Um, you know, you don't need many on the landscape to completely change the landscape, you know, into a patchwork of wetlands and meadows and things like that. So the concept has very recently been applied to things like coral reefs. So if you look at a coral reef, it's something like less than 2% of the ocean floor is coral reef, which probably still is quite a bit, but uh, by area, it's not much. But apparently over 20% of all marine organisms rely on coral reefs in some way, shape or fashion whatever it is. So Keystone, so that's a great example. Other ecosystems that would fall within that would be, you know, some of the temperate forests on the West Coast, um, things like that. And of course, estuaries. So wetlands fall totally within that concept. Wetlands in Alberta, I've done a lot of research on them. You know, they're a small amount on the landscape for the most part, but they perform these incredible functions, not only within the ecosystem itself, but within the water that basically would flow in and out of them, and of course to adjacent ecosystems. Every single biome in Alberta has some form of a wetland. Mm. So when you take these wetlands out, um, some of them, you know, are incredibly important. Like if you look at the ones in southern Alberta where we've had a lot of flooding within the last 20 years, quite a few of the communities are now actively bringing back their wetlands. Mm. Did you know that Edmonton has lost 75% of their wetlands? Wow. Calgary, 95%. Oh my gosh. So Calgary has one of the best wetland policies. So it sort of circumvents even the provincial policy because they're really struggling to bring back the wetlands because it reduces flooding. So this is this concept. If you have a few wetlands on the landscape, the impact, the benefit, the values, which you can actually put a dollar value on, you can measure flood protection, you can measure the ability to hold water and release it slowly over time. You can measure how much a wetland would take out nutrients or even toxins. They're high value. So um, wetlands are the only ecosystem type in the world that are covered by an international convention, the Ramsar Convention. Hmm. Uh, and we have about 3.5 wetlands in Alberta. I say 0.5 because one shares the border with uh, Northwest Territories. Yes. But, you know, Beaver Hill Lake is probably the uh, the one that most people might be familiar with uh, as far as a wetland, you know, just outside of Edmonton. But that is literally a Ramsar site. So it is international protection. So there's all kinds of things. Often it's wildlife or it is some sort of uh, other function that's measurable while they're protected. So um, very important in, in Alberta to realize these keystone ecosystems. And to the government's credit, um, you know, the policy has improved from the 90s when there was no policy. Literally, the province paid you to drain or fill in your wetland, and now they're protected. But the wetlands are kind of in two regions. So you hear all these stats like we've lost 65% of our wetlands and people, you know, being angry. And actually, it's only 65% from Edmonton South. And from Edmonton South, there's only about 5% of wetlands on the landscape. Mm -hmm. So we've lost a lot, you know, in critical areas. But most of our wetlands are in northern Alberta, probably close to 95%. And, and most of them are intact but not without issues. So we have a relatively good policy south where if you take out a wetland, you have to be compensated or you have to re give a really good reason for taking it out. Um, you know, it gets very complicated. There's a classification system for the valuation and it's not perfect, but it's something. 
The north is a completely different thing. So even in the oil sands region, up to 60% of the landscape, perhaps more in some regions, are wetland. And these wetlands are different. They're not the prairie potholes. These are what we would refer to as muskeg or peatlands more specifically. So those are basically the bogs and fens and some of the treed swamps. These are incredibly important from the perspective of storing carbon. They're old. They're up to 11,000 years old. They're astonishing. Even the ones around Edmonton, we have a few peatlands around here, including the Wagner Natural Area, are about 2,000 years old. So these are fascinating ecosystems that have been, you know, chugging along. They basically formed at a time when there was much more precipitation. So now with climate change and, you know, different precipitation regimes and different um, warming cycles, we don't know what's going to happen with them. So there's a number of issues. The the McClelland Lake Fen is one of the latest uh, issues. And I I just wrote a position paper uh, in support of preserving it because in the oil sands right now, uh, True North is putting in a proposal to basically create a 14-kilometer long fence or wall and cut the fen in half and it goes down about 20 meters so uh, it's astonishing to think that they could even pull this off and restore it so um, the Alberta Wilderness Association they invited me to present a paper and of course several other ecologists and scientists and hydrologists and carbon modelers have produced some information to support so we don't know if we are going to stop it or not but it's all important so yes There's lots of wetlands up there, but some are more important than others from the perspective of uniqueness and biodiversity, carbon storage. And also, if you look at the fire problems that we're having right now, intact peatlands are the most resilient ecosystems in the boreal forest. Now, the boreal forest itself is fire adapted, maybe every 60 so or years. So when you look at it from, you know, from an airplane or aerial photographs, satellite, you can see it's, it's just a patchwork of different age stands. This is why it's such a diverse area. This is why neotropical migrants from, you know, South America come here every summer. It's very productive. But when a fire comes through, this is very problematic, and we've had some very significant fires here in Alberta, even burning some of the peatlands. So you want to try to protect as much, I think, of these you know, critical ecosystems that are most resistant, that are holding the most carbon, that have incredible value from biodiversity. I'll just point out one more thing. The McClellan Fend is also a stopover for whooping cranes, which, of course, are one of the rarest species in the world started off with about 15 of them in the 30s. We have probably the largest population of summering whooping cranes in the world here in Alberta, and that's one of the reasons why we have a Ramsar site up north shared with uh, Northwest Territories for their breeding ground, but they also stop at McClellan Lake and McClellan Fen. And Mm -hmm. so here again, another reason to save some of these critically important resources that really are basically going to be things for future Albertans to enjoy and, right. and yeah so that's sort of the uh, the larger picture of the Keystone ecosystems inordinate to their size wetlands are probably Alberta's in my opinion most important Keystone ecosystem you take one out and maybe it's three strikes instead of one why do they take those wetlands out because there's incredibly rich oil sands deposits mm. or tar sands oh. however you want to refer to it um so you're doing consulting Yes. What does that kind of look like as a biologist? Yeah, so um, actually, this is great. I, uh, I encourage my students to become practicing biologists in training. 
So the Alberta Society for Professional Biologists is a body, and it's no different than the Law Society or a society that looks after dentists or doctors. Basically, they're they're kind of policing the people who are part of that group to make sure that there's no malpractice or whatever. So the biologists have their same thing. So, you know, you, you go through, you know, several hoops in order to become a professional biologist to demonstrate your ability to be a practicing biologist under those guidelines. So you know what you're doing. Um, you know, practicing biologists actually get a stamp to stamp their work and certifying it that a professional has done this. So consulting firms are probably the largest employers of biologists in Alberta, in my opinion, and I encourage students. So I've worked for several consulting firms. They're generally the ones who do the work for the large companies. So the large companies can't always afford to have a huge group of biologists, hydrologists, geologists, what have you, to help you know develop a project. So my part of it in environmental consulting was always associated with the going in before. So the environmental impact assessment is probably one of the best ways of describing it. So an EIA needs to be done on a barren piece of land before development can take place. So, you know, what's there, what's rare, and that's everything from plants, birds, mammals, invertebrates, reptiles, you know, what's going on with the water there, etc. They need to understand that. And in order to eventually restore the land or determine if there's any negative impacts uh, with a permanent facility such that that is. So I was always involved with plant primarily, but also amphibian and some bird work in my consulting and essentially trying to determine what's there and what the potential impacts. I've been involved in rare moss transplanting. So they were putting in an upgrader near Fort McMurray. And so we went in, we identified the rare mosses, located them, and then I went in with the team. And in the fall, we basically dug them out and then tried to find some places where they would likely be happy afterwards. And then you monitor them afterwards. So that's an example. Uh, Involved quite a bit with the ring road development in Edmonton. So the Anthony Henday, right, is just, it really is quite an amazing facility, but wow, it went through a lot of different ecosystems, including wetlands, which I specialize in. So I worked on a few of those, like for instance, the Lewis Estates Transit Center is built on a wetland. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The wetland wasn't happy to begin with, but uh, we had to go in there and determine what was there and what the potential impacts would be and how you could mitigate those. So you you develop prescriptions to try to minimize the development. So you're just recently presenting at an international conference. What did you present? Yeah, so I'm adjunct professor at Athabasca University and University of Alberta. And uh, I had a grad student joint with Dr. Ann Nath at the School of International Land Reclamation International Graduate School, which I'm associated with too. And uh, we had a McEwen student. So one of my star students, uh, she took four courses with me, is interested in grad work. And so we had a great project for her and it was looking at pipelines and prairie communities in southeastern Alberta. So we had the student go down there, Caitlin Lowe, and look at the plant communities where the pipeline had gone through and to see if their restoration effects, so this is post-development of the actual pipeline. So we go back and see how well did this company do? And so we looked at the rare plants. There's two very rare plants there. We looked at those plants. And then we also looked at the general vegetation community. And then the third aspect was wetlands. So at the conference, I was presenting the wetland part of that research. And uh, I mean, the good news is, is that the restoration effects were quite successful in that there was no statistically significant differences with the plant community, number of species, et cetera with wetlands on the pipeline right away uh, and then compared to wetlands off of the right-of-way. So 
I mean, it's not perfect. There were still more weedy species and things like that. But, you know, using statistics to try to develop, you know, something measurable, there was no statistically significant difference. So that's good. And, you know, the um, the silver lining in this is that the two species that we looked at, um, the rare species on the pipeline right-of-way are actually disturbance adapted. <laughs> so we found lots of them. So this was good. And so, uh, you know, what was there before? Bison. So bison created all kinds of unique in fact, bison create mini wetlands all across of the prairie when they were here. And this is one of the reasons they're trying to bring them back as a restoration tool, because they actually create heterogeneity on the landscape. And of course, even just with their fecal matter and things like that, they create whole ecosystems. So a lot of the disturbance adapted plants basically followed the bison around. Hmm. Interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Hmm, let's just see here. No, I um, I think, you know, I probably overcovered everything oh, here. No, so thank you, thank you very much for your patience. But no, um, I, ju- I just want to summarize that, you know, McEwen has created a, a great atmosphere for not only the teaching, which is our primary emphasis, you know, small classes and uh, good resources, but, you know, offering the opportunities for research um, has just been a boon because, you know, this comes directly back to the students. So not only the students, you know, being in involved in research, learning these valuable laboratory and field skills, but they're also getting published, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so uh, I just think it's such a win-win uh, situation. And I'm, you know, it's just uh, very pleased to be able to offer these opportunities to my students. And of course, it's it's beneficial to me because it's, you know, publish or perish in this business and the students have been great in helping to keep myself and, you know, some of my colleagues uh, alive <laughs> from that <laughs> yeah. perspective. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. We've got all my all my questions. Thank you very much. That was I had, awesome. Thank I had you. fun. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any further follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast, brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Lestrigian and Natalie Smatis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smatis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Lestrigian, and our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.